0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: And I think this is an idea you see in, in both the East and the West, this idea of like, okay, let me slow this down. Let me really look at it. Let me really see what's going on. And look, this is hard to do. You know, you're, you're sitting there at your computer and you get an email, you hear that, you know, it makes the ding sound, you pull it up and you know, you've just gotten word from your publisher that they're doing X, or you just got word from a business partner that there's this, or you've just been informed that you've been sued. Right. Or you just got a text from somebody you're dating and they, you know, they told you something you really didn't want to hear. Um, it, it's so easy to sort of be jerked around and to and to just always be responding, responding, responding when the, the truth is like that's also a recipe again for making things worse. And so what I what I think I'm talking about in the book, what I try to practice in my own life is a little bit of that pause, just like, okay, what is this? Let's really see what it's made up of. You know, let's really see what my options are. Let's really see if I have to do anything at all or if I could just ignore this, you know, and, and that, that's sort of what we're talking about. And, and that what stillness allows us to do is be rational about an issue or an event rather than emotional about the issue or the event. And I think we know we all make better decisions rationally than we do, you know, emotionally.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
5: Ryan, uh, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me again. I, I was thinking about this the other day. I think you might have been the first podcast that I ever did, uh, <laughs> ever, which would have been like in 2012 or something. So it's, it's so cool that you're still doing it.
5: Yeah, well, it's funny because I still, you know, I remember distinctly, like, yeah, I think you wrote a Medium post titled, Don't Start a Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody and their mother seems to to have one. And uh, yeah, it's it it's an interesting ecosystem that we live in, in terms of content. Uh, so before we get into all of that and your creative work, your career, I want to start by asking you something I don't think I've asked you yet in, okay. in the that we've had. And that is, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on you and the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: So my dad was a police officer, uh, and then he, he sort of worked his way up through the ranks. Uh, he was a detective, and then he was a sergeant. And then uh, my mom was a <clears throat> a school vice principal, but not but like a continuing education school. So like the people that were getting their GEDs or you know adults taking computer classes or whatever. So not she wasn't like a, a principal at a school for kids. So. I had two parents who were civil servants they made you know sort of good money but they had you know jobs that uh they clocked in and clocked out of every day and um sort of just a very normal you know middle class upper middle class uh background uh, with with very I don't think I met I don't think I met a writer I love books but I don't think I ever like met a person who made books until I was sort of well on my way to wanting to be one.
5: Mm, So your dad being a cop, one of the things I wondered, and I think I asked somebody this the other day who actually coincidentally told me that their, their father was a cop. What did uh, your dad being a police officer teach you about diversity tolerance, um, you know, biases and the kinds of things that police officers, I think, deal with on an, a daily basis. And what do you think public misperceptions are about people who work in law enforcement?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so my dad, uh, had, a, a bunch of interesting jobs. He, he ran, uh, he worked in hate crimes for a while. Uh, he worked in the explosives, uh, disposal unit for a while. He was the robbery division. So he, and then, and then he ran a sort of a community police center uh, near where we lived. So he had all these interesting, uh, he had all these interesting different professions inside being a, a, a cop. So I think w- one of the things that people sort of miss is that there's like a big distinction between like a cop who wears a uniform and is like walking around or patrolling the streets. And then as you sort of go Up through the system, the job becomes, in a lot of ways, much more administrative and much more sort of sheltered from the concerns that I think, uh, obviously, are are in the headlines today. So I I never knew my dad doing those things growing up. I knew my dad being uh, someone who was sort of seeing how things worked behind the scenes. So I just remember a lot of like, interesting conversations with him about, you know, I, I remember him telling me once, uh, it was something I, I sort of thought about more recently. I remember him telling me how uh, the Ku Klux Klan recruited members, which is that they would go into like, say a high school uh, and they would write like graffiti on the wall that was like anti-white people. So they'd write like kill whitey, you know, or, or like offensive things about white people um, as if a black person had done it um, mm-hmm. to sort of activate uh you know, or, or radicalize, like basically dumb, uh, ignorant white people. And, and so I, you know, as you watch this sort of political environment we're in now and you watch how easy it is for people to become polarized and, and sort of how these sort of, uh, flashpoints, uh, sort of pop up. It's always, it, it's, I, I just remember things from my childhood just sort of seeing like, oh, that's how things work, um, You know, that's how that's how the system operates. That's like the logic that maybe you don't understand. Um, But it it, it wasn't like I I grew up with my dad, you know, sort of driving a patrol car that just like wasn't my experience.
5: Well, you know, I think it's interesting that you you brought up hate crimes of all things. If I remember correctly, didn't you write an essay on Medium titled Dad, Please Don't Vote for Trump?
1: I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, You know, I, I grew up in a uh, in Sacramento, which is a pretty conservative town, uh, in and, in a, and then a pretty conservative district inside of it. My dad's not like some like sort of raging far right winger, but like, like I think a lot of people's parents, uh, it's like, I know almost, let's say no millennials who support Trump, right. uh, uh, or, or, or think that he's doing a good job. And then you talk to people and you, know, you talk to somebody's white parents, you suddenly get, uh, a very different perspective. Some of the things that are sort of shocking or appalling, they find a way to either rationalize or they they just have a different perspective on it. So, yeah, my dad my dad grew up listening to talk radio. As probably voted Republican in every election he's he's uh, been able to vote in, and so you you see uh, you know two people able to look at very at the same events okay. from very uh, from a very different perspective.
5: Well, you know, so we had uh, Andrew Yang, who's a presidential candidate here as yeah. a guest in the podcast. And, and one thing I think that struck me about that conversation, you know, I, I think that you and I live in a world where we live lives of pretty much lives of privilege, right? You and I do things that are, smaller. we're not doing, you know, hard labor. Uh, And and when you look at why people made some of the decisions they did in terms of their political choices, you know, a lot of them are like just working to survive and you kind of say, okay, wow, that's not me. Like I'm not, you know, working in a factory or, or, you know, under threat of of being able to work again. So in that sense, I realized I was like, okay, you know what? I I think that I remember I saw this documentary on the most pro-Trump town in North America and there was this ranching family And they had said that, you know, you like you would think, oh, these are going to be like these like super racist rednecks. And then when you realize the reason for their vote was they had had this ranch in their family for decades. The land is worth like millions of dollars and it would be worthless to anybody who's not a rancher. And at the same time, they said, basically, if, you know, Trump didn't get elected, they would lose this land that basically they had lived off of for generations. Um, And you realize you're like, wow, that wasn't, you know. Like a matter of spite or hate or anything, it was literally a matter of, of survival for them.
1: Yeah, no, and look, I, I live out—I uh, have a place out in the country outside Austin. Uh, Austin is a pretty liberal city, but the uh, where, where my where my ranch is, is is certainly certainly not. It's it's pretty red country, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, you realize that it's just much more complicated than the sort of uh, you know that can fit in a you know, a a 280 character tweet, um, which is what I was trying to do in that piece. I wasn't trying to shame my dad. I was just trying to actually sort of reflect back to him a lot of the lessons that I learned growing up. I think, I think to me, that's the most disappointing part of, of, um, the sort of the white educated, um, you know, upper middle-class Trump support is, is not, uh, is is the ability to rationalize um, and justify sort of behaviors or language or ideas Mm -hmm. that I remember them and my teachers and the politicians that they supported, you know, expressing as being particularly abhorrent. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, if if I had been friends with a kid whose dad was on his third marriage and regularly cheated on his wife with porn stars, you know, my parents would have been like, don't, don't go over to that guy's house. Uh, You know, and then so for them to turn around and be like, "Oh, you know, he's a good Christian." It's just it's nonsense. Um, Well, so the other thing I've
5: wondered, and I've not gotten to talk to you in in, you know quite some time, probably actually believe it or not, since this election took place. Um, And I, you know, I'd always thought to myself, you know, like "Confessions of a Media Manipulator" like is so much more relevant now. Uh, sadly, yes, was then. And and, like, you look at in so many ways, like I recognize the things in your own playbook happening, you know, directly from the guy who is in the White House. Because like, sometimes I wonder if half the crazy shit he's saying is literally just to get media coverage, because, you know, I I remember it's like, okay, it went, you know, when you saw those initial talking points, it was like, wow, these drowned out literally every other person, you know, in the campaign, like, I literally didn't know who Ted Cruz was until like, midway through 2016 um and and i thought yeah this is i remember i made a joke about it on facebook i said you know uh you know roger stone is is basically donald trump's ryan holiday and so like i wonder now that you you know looking at the kinds of ideas in that book in the wake of of this election and the media landscape now like how do you think about all this stuff like what is your view on it
1: Yeah, look, I wrote that book precisely because I was seeing at much lower levels and in much less significant uh, circumstances, a lot of the same sort of behaviors working. I saw how easy it was to sort of create fake outrage. I saw how easy it was to sort of hijack the news cycle. I saw how people who who sort of had nothing to lose or had no shame, could do a really good job of getting all sorts of attention. And I wrote that book largely as a means of of sort of communicating, like, hey, this is uh, not good, and people need to understand how this works. And it, it's it was disappointing. It was disappointing to see the media reaction to that book, which was to largely sort of dismiss me or or to say that I was some sort of singular bad actor or whatever. um, And to sort of not do anything about the problems that I was highlighting in that book. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so look, it's not that I feel guilty about it because I feel like what my job was with, with that book was to sort of show in a very unflinching manner, like exactly what was going on in the way that like a computer hacker might sort of break into a, uh you know some some security system and then show how that worked. The idea is somebody better fix that afterwards so it doesn't happen again. And and I think we went through the, the media I guess what I would say is the media is certainly not blameless. The the media has repeatedly left uh, a a lot of sort of easily plugged holes in its system because those systems are really good for business. Like um, in, in the 2016 election, Trump got something like $2 billion worth of free publicity. And so people think like, oh, you know what, what they don't realize is that the media is not in the business of giving away publicity. The media then monetized the attention that they gave Trump mm-hmm. to be worth even many more billions of dollars of that. I think the CEO of of, uh, of CBS. It's something like Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's very good for CBS.
5: Yes. Yep. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so that, that's just the reality of the media system we're in. So I, it's a, it's a book that I, I wish had been disproven or made irrelevant. Uh, but, but, you know, seven plus years later, um, it's still being taught in schools and, and it's probably more right today than it was when it came out. Um, which is not, again, not a good thing.
5: Well, and and you know, what's scarier is the tools are easier to use. Like I, I mean, <laughs> of course. we're seeing state produced propaganda, like people may not know this, but if you just do a search on YouTube for real news update, you will actually see propaganda coming straight out of the White House news that's produced by the White House. It's never happened in history that I know of.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, you know. no, it's very, it's very alarming. And, and the reason I think we have trouble wrapping our heads around that is that, um, you know, everyone is, the the media is also bombarding us with all this other nonsense of stuff that doesn't matter. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's like the boy who cried wolf uh, type situation where you really can't, a normal person is not able to wrap their head around and process all this information that's being thrown at them. Like I, I know how this works and I still am bombarded by it and I still fall for stuff. So Um, it's a, it's a scary time. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about one other thing here. Um,
5: you said your mom was a uh, vice principal and, you know, I wonder your mother being a vice principal, like what did she teach you about education? Particularly because she, you know, was working with people who got their GEDs and you also happened to have dropped out of college. So like, I wonder what, you know, what did she pass on to you about education and what are your views, you know, on a current, our current education system? I know that your son is young, but I know that this has to have crossed your mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. My, so my mom was a school principal, and she. I think that's where I got my love of reading. I think that's where I found. Uh, you know, I I, I like school. It just ended up not being the right thing for me uh, to to finish college. Um, but but I I learned from my parents the skills, as particularly from my mom, from the the skills that I. Now apply in, in what I think is sort of my on, ongoing education, um, but but when you have your own kids, that you do, you're right. You do start thinking about these things in a very different way, and uh, I think that the, what I go back and forth with is like, um, you know, is there even such th- like like the question is like, are public schools good? Is it worth paying for a private school? Should you move? to be closer to a good public school or or whatever and and one of the things my wife and I have spent a lot of time talking about is like is there even such a thing as a good school anymore and and uh is it is it not something unfortunately that's just become if you want your kid to actually learn skills that will be viable and 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 uh you know helpful in in the world that we are quickly moving towards, yeah. is this not something that the parents have to take, you know, sort of primary control over? I'm not, not really talking about homeschooling. I just mean like it, even if you went to a really good public school, which I, I went to a good public school, but it, things weren't so quite dominated by, you know, where you went to college yet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how you did on standardized tests, whatever, you know, do, do you end up half, do, does it, do you end up just having to significantly supplement your kid's education because you just can't rely on what you get from school? So it's, a, it's not a decision I've had to make just yet, yeah. but it is something I'm I'm starting to have to think about. And <clears throat> I remember I probably in, in, in retrospect was a poor idea, but I remember I wrote uh, in a, my college admissions essay, I wrote an essay on the distinction between school and education. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was a school principal, um but but is that where I got my education? I would say probably not. Edu- education is something you get and make for yourself that that comes from experiences, that comes from what you're exposed to, that comes from, you know, so you're pursuing things you're actually interested in. Mm-hmm. And then school is like what you're learning in third period and then how you do on tests and and I'm just not sure if that matters anymore.
5: So if you like The Unmistakable Creative, there's another podcast that I think you'll really like. So how does an opera singer learn a new role? How does an actress find the perfect accent for her character? What does the director of a TV drama actually do all day? Those are the questions that Ruman Alam, Isaac Butler, and June Thomas put to creative people every week on Working. Learn how writers outline novels, how composers get jobs and get paid, and how YouTube creators learn to look into the camera lens. Listen to Working from Slate every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you made a really good point about taking ownership and accountability for your education. And I think that extends far beyond you know being in school. I think that takes us into life, which really kind of makes a, a perfect segue to talk about, you know, sort of developing the skills that allow you to stay relevant in the world today, uh, because I think you're in this just constant need to iterate and to adapt. Um, and you have seemed to, you know, really kind of in, in so many ways, like you're the definition of prolific. Like we were joking earlier that, yeah, it, when, when I get a book from, you know, our publisher in the mail that you've written, literally I finish it and a week later there's a new galley at my doorstep. I'm like, where the hell did he write this? Uh, so let, let's talk about this because I mean, you really, you've done something I think that is a, a rare, sort of accomplishment for a writer, which is you've maintained somehow a combination of both quantity and quality. Um, yeah. People who can do qual- quantity, like that's easy. Um, I mean, I, I know that out of my thousand words every, every day, like if you assume that I write more, like a million words a year, maybe 40,000 of it is decent. If that, you know, that's the the part that I risk sharing. And uh, so I wonder, you know, what does this process look like? Um, you know, where does, you know, how do you come up with an idea for a book? And it, it seems like that, you know, you took like a break from this sort of ancient wisdom with uh, perennial seller and, and conspiracy, but then kind of returned back to it with um, the most recent book, which we'll, we'll get into, but I want yeah. to the process first, because I know that you and I've talked a little bit about the, um, you know,
1: note card process, but I want to look at your book writing process in a bit more detail. So I think one of the things I, I definitely took from both my parents is that whatever you do, it's a job. Right. And the job requires you to show up and work on a daily basis. And I think that's something you wouldn't think would distinguish you from other writers. But it's true. Like I talked to a lot of writers and they're sort of like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And it's like, you don't know what you want to do next. I'm already halfway done with what I'm doing next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think there's a lot of fat in people's process yeah. um, when I talk to them. You know, it's sort of like, oh, you know, in three weeks, I'm going to take a, vac- I'm you know, in three weeks, I'm going to take uh, a month to just go write, and then I'm going to come back with a book. And I'm yeah. like, imagine anyone else doing a job that way. That's just not how, I, I, no, you, you work every day. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's it. I think, like, I don't think there's some magical secret to my prolificness. Like, look, Stillness is the Key comes out in October. I finished it. I finished like what is more or less the rough the, the 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 published edition. I mean obviously as you know there's lots of yeah. sort of editing and refining and whatever, but like it was accepted by the publisher, which is like the 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 big hurdle you have to get over. It's also Eight. when they give you, you know, your second check, which is very important. Yes. But it was accepted in December of twenty uh eighteen. Okay. Right? I, I sold it in I think January of 2017 or maybe December of 2017. So it took about a year to get to like the rough draft. And then there was another, uh, you know, six months or so of editing and refining. But like, as soon as I finished it, I started thinking about what I wanted to write next. And then I, I sold that and then I started working on that. And then I've taken breaks and had to go back and, you know, whatever. But the, the point is like, I not like when um when when this book comes out in October I'm like halfway done uh or more than halfway done with with what is the next book which was which is easier to write in some respects than than some of my other ones mm-hmm. and then I I'm I'm going out in a couple of weeks with the proposal for the book I want to do after that and the the point is like I'm not I'm not a writer to not be, spend my time writing like the whole the the joy and the privilege and the luck of the job for me is getting paid to write things uh-huh. and to have the freedom to write and publish the things I want to write. Yeah. So I'm always going to be doing that. I'm not going to be, you know, doing long pauses of me not doing that. It's like, if you asked an NBA player, if they wanted to, to, you know, play more, they'd be like, yeah, of course. That's what I, I that's what I'm put on the planet to do. Yeah.
5: Well, it's funny, you know, you were talking about this because I knew, you know, when I finished the the audience of one book, I was like, oh, I don't have a contract for a third book. My friend's like, what are you going to yeah. do? And I said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to write. And, you know, and as my friend, we have one of my contracts, he's like, look, he's like, what well, got you that book deal in the first place is that you self published. You're no longer under contract. If you want to write books, just keep writing books. So I did. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I was like, okay, this proposal is taking a long time to be accepted, it's gone through a thousand iterations, but. I still have the luxury and the freedom to self-publish. I want to write, so I'm going to write. But more so than just wanting to put a book out, I wanted to make sure that I didn't lose the momentum that I had spent two years building. Totally. That if I didn't, if I let that go. And so in this process of trying to get a proposal done for a third book with a publisher, I've ended up writing two self-published books. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of because, you know, the thing is that, like, I, I realized is like, oh, okay, well, I don't right now have the luxury of a contract in which, you know, I'm guaranteed that I'm going to get paid to write a next book. But sure. I was like, okay, you know what, I need to not let that be a deterrent from following through on the process that has gotten me to this point in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and I think as a writer, you also mm-hmm. want to be moving, maybe the phrase for a sort of like escape velocity, like, like so, I did. Trust me, I'm lying in 2012, and then I did my growth hacking book a little bit after that. Then I wrote the Obstacle Is the Way, um, and and each one of those books was a little bit bigger than the one before it. And then then I got straight to work on Ego Is the Enemy, and then I did Daily Stoic. The the point was, <clears throat> every it's like even if I'm not publishing new books, mm-hmm. um, my my backlist is being discovered and gone through by each subsequent new fan. And so now here I am, when this new book comes out, I have this, you know, and you talk about this in your writing, you want to accumulate an audience who's looking forward to what you do. And so that's where that momentum is really important. It's like, I read, and I I, sometimes I talk to these these authors because they want to hire my firm. It's like, they're like, hey, I did a book in you know 2011 and it sold 200,000 copies, which is you know a lot, a, a very big success for a book. And then they're like, and now in 2019, I want to do a follow up. And it's like, those people forgot that you exist. Okay. I mean, that's so long ago, yeah. And they are those people are not looking out for the you're you're starting from scratch again. Uh-huh. And I think that's sort of part of my philosophy, which is that you want to keep publishing, you want to maintain the momentum. There's a there's a line um, I, I heard from the guys at Summit series um, they were telling me they were like, you know, you rest at the end, not in the middle mm-hmm. and I, I think that's a, a really that that's sort of part and parcel of my writing philosophy, which is like, yeah, it's not like I'll sleep when I'm dead, but it's right. like now's my window uh-huh. and I'm gonna and, and people are reading what I'm writing and and I have a proven track record. I'm not going to fritter that away by, you know, uh, messing around with stuff. Oh, yeah.
5: I mean, I I think in 10 years of running the podcast, we've taken a break. Like, we take a break in December. And during that time, we publish, you know, our best of episodes just so we can start out January. And, you know, anytime somebody asked me about this, I always use the example of Friends. You know, I said, look, NBC put Friends on the air for 10 years. And every Thursday night, you knew at 8 o'clock that if you turn on your TV, you were going to get Friends in Seinfeld. Now, if the writers decided, you know, we're only going to write episodes when we're in the mood, they would never build an audience. It was like, you don't want your content to be an interruption. You want it to be a habit.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why even, and, and I like what you do with your thousand words a day. Like, I'm also always writing articles. And I mean, I do I do two daily emails for two different sites that I have, the Daily Sto- or dailystoic.com and dailydad.com. I'm I'm always making stuff because the more stuff you're making the more people can discover what you're doing the 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 better your chances of of uh of, of creating something that really resonates with people and then I also think like look like when you look at stand up comedians what are they talking about they're talking about getting stage time they're talking about how you get better the more reps that you take and so I think it's a weird thing with writers where um they, they aren't doing like one of the reasons I think writers don't get better is that they're not publishing enough. And so they're not getting feedback and, and, and practice time at the craft. And, and so I'm, I'm very cognizant of that as well.
5: Well, let's do this. Uh, we've been talking about a, a bunch of different subjects, but I think all of which are tangentially related to but well, you know really where we're headed. and, and that is this idea of, of you know stillness is the key. Where you know what prompted this book of, of all the ones that you could work on next?
1: So usually my books start with like a quote or a story or just something that sticks with me and it's enough that I write it down or I put it on a note card or I just I just think about it. And then what I start to do is accumulate um, a, a pattern. I, I start to notice this this pattern everywhere. And there's uh, that that's just what happened with this book. Uh, I I found a quote, and it was the quote is a uh, Tao uh, is in in the emptiness. Emptiness is in the fast of the mind. Hmm. And and that quote just uh, it just stuck with me. the the idea of emptiness being a good thing the idea of clearing the mind uh, is, is obviously a, a, a sort of a Buddhist idea. Um, and, and I was interested in that because I'd written all these books about Stoicism. And, and then I, as I was rereading the Stoics and just sort of going about what I what I write about, I, I kept finding this similarity between the Stoics and the Buddhists. And it was a question I would get asked when I would give talks. And so I just decided maybe there's something here. And then I, I zoomed in on this idea of stillness, which is a word that that appears as much in Marcus Aurelius as it does in Confucius, as it does in the you know in in, in the various Eastern religions. And so, it's it's noticing a pattern, and to me, note a pattern that a book has to be a reflection of a pattern. You're noticing something, and you have a unique angle on it, and you're communicating that pattern to a larger audience. And and that's what I think the obstacle is the way is that's what he goes the enemy is. And stillness is the key just comes from that same tradition for me.
5: Yeah. It's funny because I, I, you know, I I started working on this new self-published book called make more art. And I I recognize right now that I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Like this is, I feel like every book that I work on is also based on some pattern that I've seen. And usually uh, it almost often also comes from something else I've noticed in in something else that I was working on or it emerged from a previous book somehow.
1: Yeah, I would say each one of my books is like a chapter is is a it is an expanded version of a chapter in one of my previous books. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, like when you remove ego, stillness is something that that emerges. Yeah. You know, it's impossible to figure out how to get over obstacles if your if your mind is, you know, running a mile a minute. You need to sort of slow things down and see them clearer. And so this book, which I sort of see as this, as a sort of a, a final book in a trilogy, it goes obstacles away, it goes the enemy and then stillness is the key. Um, the, the, the book is just, you're so much of writing. I feel like is just sort of receiving, this sounds a little woo, just kind of like receiving what's, what's being sent to you. I don't know if it's by the universe or Stephen Pressfield would say it's by the muses. Maybe a religious person would say it's sent from God. Uh, to me, I think it's just, the 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 truths kind of emerge from the material and you're just the, the writer is a is a receptacle that is that is capturing it and and so my bo- that's what my books are i, I notice a pattern i I, or I notice an idea i write it down and as i am going through and doing this i'm accumulating more and more examples of that insight and then i go hey i think there's a book here and, and that's where where what i end up writing next yeah
5: well let's let's get into the book itself. I think that you know it would be hard to get into each one of these, but you did so much and I think that really, you know, you opened it up beautifully by saying, you know, to achieve stillness we'll need to focus on three domains, the timeless trinity of mind, body, soul, the head, the heart, and the human body. And you know, in the first chapter you talk about becoming present, and this is probably my favorite quote from that. You said, you know, each of us will in our own lives face crisis, the stakes may be lower than, and and when you say that you're referring to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I know you wrote about, but to us, they will matter. A business on the brink of collapse, an acrimonious divorce, a decision about the future of our career, a moment where the whole game depends on us. These situations will call upon our mental resources, an emotional reactive response, and unthinking half-baked response will not cut it. Uh, So how do you develop the capacity to not have a reactive response?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think one of the things I learned from the Stoics is this idea of like, look, you can always make things worse. And then our sort of first job is just to not do that. Right. <laughs> um, so if, if we can go like, hey, look, I'm not going to overreact. I'm not going to emotionally respond. I'm not going to just, you know, I'm not just going to be driven by instincts or fears or aversions. I'm going to be really conscious of, of each and every action that I take. And I think this is an idea you see in in both the East and the West. This idea of like, okay, let me slow th- let me slow this down. Let me really look at it. Let me really see what's going on. And look, this is hard to do. You know, you're you're sitting there at your computer, and you get an email. You hear that you know it makes the ding sound. You pull it up, and you know you've just gotten word from your publisher that they're doing X, or you just got word from a business partner that there's this, or you've just been informed that you've been sued, right or you just got a text from somebody you're dating and they you know they told you something you really didn't want to hear um, it, it's so easy to sort of be jerked around and to and to just always be responding, responding, responding when the the truth is like that's also a recipe again for making things worse. and so what I what I think I'm talking about in the book what I try to practice in my own life is a little bit of that pause, just like, okay. What is this? Let's really see what it's made up of. You know, let's really see what my options are. Let's really see if I have to do anything at all, or if I could just ignore this, you know, and, and that that's sort of what we're talking about. And and that what stillness allows us to do is be rational about an issue or an event mm-hmm. rather than emotional about the issue or the event. And I think we know we all make
4: Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
5: So you talk uh, about limiting your inputs, which I think is incredibly relevant to the world that we live in. You know, you say each of us has access to more information than we could ever reasonably use. We tell ourselves that this is part of our job, that we have to be on top of things. And so we give up precious time to news reports, meetings and other forms of feedback. Even if we're not glued to a television, we're still surrounded by gossip, drama and other distractions. And you know, I I wrote about this. I think in Audience of One, saying that we're just like drowning in a sea of noise, and there's no way you can hear the sound of your own creative voice if you're just constantly consuming. Um, So I wonder, you know, like where this came from. Uh, The other question I have about this whole idea of putting in your inputs, and this is something you know, you weren't a parent the last time we spoke, and so I wonder, you know, being in the process of, of experiencing fatherhood, how has that impacted your way of working and, and your way of even just navigating this sort of information overload and
1: this idea of limiting inputs. Well, so my son was born on, on, uh, the day after Trump got elected and actually the sort of election returns, I, I think sent my wife into labor. And so I remember sitting there in the hospital, uh, you know, there's a TV on, uh, I've got my phone and I just was like reading news from these people Who had and and I believe them, and I'd said some of these things myself. Who who had been very convinced that there was zero chance of Trump winning, Uh, and then what do you know? They were completely and totally wrong, and and I it just was a striking moment for me because I was like, why am I listening to these people? These people just spent the last year uh, basically gaslighting me, telling me the exact opposite of of what was going on their job is to inform and in fact they not only inform me but they gave me the exact wrong impression of the facts on the ground right and and i just realized like oh man i have to consume a lot less of this crap and so i i basically have not watched cable news since uh i have uh dramatically limited the amount of articles that i read i try not to consume news in real time i've tried to i i've I've not only increased the amount of books that I've read, but I, I spend signif- I spent a significant amount of time in the last 12 months trying to reread books that I've already read. So not even reading new books, um, which obviously is a funny thing to say as I'm on this, you know promoting a new book. But the, the point is like I'm trying to focus my time and, and if I am going to have an input, I want that input to be timeless. I want it to be, I want to be very confident that it's correct, that it's going to endure. And then I want, I want it to be giving me wisdom and not information. Wisdom makes my life better. Information distracts me, right? Information is a commodity. Wisdom is, is a sort of priceless resource. Mm. And, and so I've just tried to dramatically decrease the amount of time that I focus consuming information. So I can focus more time and energy on my family, on myself, and also on creating things that I think matter and make the world a better place. And so, you know, I think the average person just consumes far too much noise. It follows way too much news in real time Mm -hmm. and uh, and would be happier and stiller and make better decisions and ironically be much more informed. If they focused on the bigger picture, you
5: know it's funny because I've never been a consumer of news until this year, uh, mainly because I'm like, this is such a crazy shit show that it's actually yeah. entertaining, and I'm like, okay, this is bad, but you're you're making a really uh, you know uh, strong case for why I should stop. You know, I remember also very distinctly in one article you wrote on Medium, you said that you uh, haven't you stopped using Facebook months ago, like you gave your assistant your password. Yeah. Yeah, It was like six or seven months ago. And the reason this struck me in particular, and I think I I wrote about it actually. And I mentioned you in, in this thing, I wrote a piece titled, nobody gives a shit what you're going to start. Uh, Because I said, look, every day people on Facebook are talking about the things they're going to start. But I said, show me what you've shipped, show me what you've finished. And you're such a perfect example of that. Because I very distinctly remember our last conversation, we were talking about this, you said it's insane for you to be talking about, you said you never talk about a book until it's finished. And I noticed that the only Instagram picture I ever saw through this process was when you put was the finished manuscript. Yeah, And I thought, wow, he he absolutely spot on is, is saying that that's the absolute truth, what he was saying last time. So I, I wanted to ask you about this because, uh, you know, we've had Cal Newport here uh, who has been very uh, like a, a vocal advocate for what he calls digital minimalism. Um, you know, and, and we'd actually talked about you in, in, in the last conversation I had with him and, and about the fact that, you know, like you're exemplary of this. So I kind of just wanted to hear your, your thoughts on all this sure. and, um, because, you know, Facebook is a different beast than it was even two years ago when you and I spoke and you know, this was one of uh, a big point of contention with me and, and the publisher when we were going through the audience of one launch, because I was like, look, nobody buys books based on having seen a Facebook ad, but that's a whole other story. Uh, yeah. But uh, that being said, like, you know, uh, and also, you know, so much of the book that I wrote was about why we need to reduce ourselves to like sure. Facebook. thought I thought was insanity, but, um, you're, you know, that's just one example, but I think it, it's much more relevant to some of the things that you talk about in terms of slowing down in terms of cultivating silence. Uh, you know, how like just, you know, uh, I'm curious sure. about all this.
1: No, no, look, uh, so, uh, for, for Daily Stoic, we do these challenges periodically. We do, uh, that we've done a 30 day challenge and a 10 day challenge and a 21 day challenge. They've been really awesome. And in January, like I think the second or third day of the challenge it was about a sort of a new year, a new you idea. And one of the challenges is you had to quit a bad habit. And I don't have a ton of bad habits. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Uh, you know, I eat well. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to quit Facebook. This is something that, I don't have control over like I check it more than I should more than I want to, and it doesn't really contribute to my happiness uh-huh. now the and and that's what I did i I quit in January and I really have not checked it since I have a I have a sort of a burner account that I use because we have a, a Facebook group for daily Stoic uh, but it doesn't have any friends uh it's just basically using Facebook as a message board uh there's no scrolling no whatever but the downside of, of quitting has been like, look, I don't I, I used to like seeing your thousand words a day on Facebook <laughs> and, and I would see it on a regular basis. And it was there and I would see other things, you know, friends that I that I hadn't connected with in a while or, you know, I, I, someone I know would post something funny or I'd see a good news story or I'd, you know, hear about something that would work its way into one of my books. It's, it's not to say Facebook is not without value because it certainly is. And I, and I don't know if I'd be here where I am in my career without mm-hmm. it. But what I found was that it was causing me more pain than pleasure. Like it was something I was powerless over. That was one. But I was noticing that most of the time, most of what I was seeing there was not contributing to my happiness. So it was, you know, negative news stories or it was people fighting about things or it was people bragging about things or it was people marketing. In, in a way that I knew because I knew them or I know how the industry works in a dishonest way. So I would see people talk about things that I knew that, that I happened to know weren't true. And then I was, even though I knew they weren't true, I was still finding myself being made insecure by them or comparing myself against them. So I'd go, I'd see, oh, so and so, you know, said this is their speaking fee. Uh, why is that higher than mine? Are they better than me? And then it's like objectively, I know that they're you know, they've, they've inflated it by half, uh, but it's still, it was still so hard not to get caught up in that. And so cutting it out, it not only, uh, I think has it made me a lot more productive. I mean, I, I'm not checking it 30 times a day and I'm not carrying it around in my pocket, but most importantly, I'm not, I'm, I'm out of the sort of the cycle or the arms race that the algorithm is designed To elicit, if the Facebook algorithm was designed to make you feel content and good about yourself, you wouldn't post, right? You wouldn't, you you wouldn't, you wouldn't spend time, you know, endlessly scrolling on it. It, It's designed to make you uncomfortable, almost in like the way that a nightclub is designed to make you socially uncomfortable, so you, you, so you buy overpriced alcohol. Like that's that's the entire. If if a if a nightclub was quiet and relaxing, and you could hear people talk. People would spend a lot less money on liquor, and and so just realizing that that's what Facebook was doing gave me the power to go like, look, I'm just opting out of this entirely, and it's been it's been really well, great.
5: It's funny because I would never think you with you know having had the the sort of level of success that you have would have the same demons that I have it. I mean, that was one of those things that I for me it was the comparison thing. I would be like, oh, this person sold more books than I did. I was like, oh, this person hit the New York Times bestseller list, and I'm just like, oh, why? Uh, yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah, I would have never imagined you having reached the level of success you have or having the same problems. So that's, that's refreshing to hear.
1: Well, look, I, I don't, I, I, it's not like sort of false humility. I I think like, like, look, if you talk to a billionaire, most of what you're going to hear from them is things they are benchmarking against other billionaires. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like there is no, there is no person on the planet that is not, is not endlessly comparing themselves to other people alive or dead. It's sort of the curse of our species in in some ways. It's, it's responsible for why no one's ever able to really feel good about what they've done. And it's something I sort of was talking about in the book, like, you know, Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. He's totally right. Um, the idea of, of having enough, knowing what, knowing how to be content with what you have and, and what you've done is, is really important. And it's, really hard when there are brilliant engineers designing products designed to exploit that feedback loop. And so I think that's one of the reasons that sort of opting out of these platforms is important. The other is just like, look, like uh, Twitter doesn't do that to me. Twitter doesn't make me compare it myself to other people. I just see people spend way too much time on it. And then you go, how are you not prolific? It's because you're working for Twitter for free, <laughs> you know, six hours yeah, a day. Yeah.
5: Well, i, I want to come back to the uh the idea of enough um that was probably one of my favorite chapters in the entire book because something i've been thinking a lot about as i you know uh, come on you know turning 42 i think and then my sister's married and like a lot of things in my life haven't happened the way i thought they were going to and i've been thinking a lot about that idea but i want to come back to that because there okay. are um some other things that you talked about in the domain of the soul and two in particular that struck me uh you know, one was this idea of healing the inner child, and the other was being aware of desire, which I think is kind of related to this idea of enough. Um, but the, the idea of the inner child, I think that was one that was fascinating to me because, you know, like, I, I, my joke is that, you know, the spiritual journey of adulthood is basically fixing all the things that you think your parents screwed up in your childhood. Of course, yeah. Of course. That's my you know definition of spirituality at this point. Having and it was hilarious because I, w- I was just on a, a call with a vendor who's looking at translating all of our content into Spanish. They built this new AI technology, and they listened to a few episodes. and, and The founder is like, "Oh wow, I, you know, I listened to your your podcast this weekend. You must be one of the most self actualized people in the world." And I said, "Are you kidding? <laughs> like, I'm more screwed up than most people." I, I just thought it was a hilarious comment for her to make. Uh, sure. So, well, so this inner child thing. I mean, did you have? Childhood wounds that you had to to get past. How did you, uh, you know? And, and how do we navigate this? Because I think that everybody has an inner child that, in some way or other, has been wounded by some experience.
1: Yeah. Look, I th- I think that's a very uh, that's a very important thing, and it it's it you you said it right because I think a lot of people go, oh, you know, I wasn't abused as a kid. Like my parents didn't beat me. Uh, of of course, my childhood is fine. I don't have any childhood wounds. And the truth is, everyone has wounds. We have so many wounds from, from how we grew up, what we were deprived of, what we didn't get from what people said to us, from how we were built, you know, from, from things we picked up from television. And so yeah, I mean, look, I think everyone has some sort of age that they're a little bit stuck at. And you might be at different ages with different things, you know, your temper might be the temper of a nine year old. And your you know, your libido might be the libido of a 16 year old and your, you know, your insecurities might be more of a high school freshman or, you know, whatever it is. Right. But, but I think it's, it's really realizing that, oh, my desires and my aversions are not necessarily seated up here in my rational adult brain, but they're actually located, you know, somewhere in my soul, somewhere stuck in a younger version of myself. And I remember um, what what sort of set me off on, on that journey was I was listening to a podcast interview with, with Judd Apatow. And I know he talked about it in his book also. Um, uh, was it funny in the head or so, something like that? Um, and, uh, but he was talking about he, it, it. He just realized one day as he was in this sort of knockdown down drag out fight with his, with the movie studio that he was treating the people giving him notes on his movie as if they were his parents. And so instead of them going like, Judd, the movie is too long, he was hearing like, Judd, you'll never be good enough. Or, you know, like, Judd, why don't you clean up after yourself? Or like, you know, he he was reacting to these objective sort of creative notes as if they were his divorce-arguing parents who he had a contentious relationship with. And I just realized that that explained a lot of things in my own life. It explains why I get upset when I get back, you know, my book from my editor (laughs) and all I'm seeing, I'm not seeing like, Hey, these are all the things I can do to make the book better. I'm hearing like this person doesn't understand me and they don't get me and they're trying to change me and they're not letting me be who I want to be, you know? And, and so needless to say, reacting to, uh, a, a business, you know, exchange as if it is a, uh, a deeply rooted, you know, sort of emotional or psychological personal issue is not a good way to get the best work or to reach a compromise or to communicate, you know, your beliefs effectively. Like Judd Apatow might have been totally right about not liking their notes but the way he's going to go about it, if he's treating them like his parents is, is obviously not an effective way to do that. Yeah.
5: so there's one thing that,
1: uh, I appreciated this chapter and I, I wonder if part of it is, is because of age,
5: you know, I remember whoever, some comedian joke, he's like, "Old people become religious because they want to get into heaven. But, uh, yes. yeah, you, you talked about accepting a higher power and part of, uh, I've always been incredibly skeptical about religion or higher powers, particularly because all Indian religious traditions are very time consuming. Uh, I'm about this. And, and, uh, it was funny because I had, um, uh, another guy here uh, is Michael Ventura who wrote, uh, Applied, applied empathy. And he had said in a conversation with Jonathan Fields that Ganesh was the remover of obstacles. And I remember coming home to my mom and saying, Hey, can I have a Ganesh? And she's like, what? She's like, since when are you interested in this? And I was like, well, I heard somebody on a podcast say this. And I remember right after that, I got booked for a speaking gig after a year of no being booked at all. Um, yeah, really? and so I was like, okay, wow. Uh, you know, whether that's just coincidence or superstition, whatever. Um, But it made me kind of realize, wow, th- there's something to be said for having faith in things that we can't explain or understand with
1: logic or, or science. And yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. I think what I'm what I'm also trying to say in that chapter is just like when I oh, I became an atheist. I don't know, like 18 or 19 years old. I was reading books in college, and it made a lot of sense to me. Um, I wasn't, that wasn't, uh, a realization from a place of humility. It was, uh, it was, it was a form of intellectual arrogance, right? It's like, I'm so smart. I read this book. I know more than all you people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that sort of atheism is in, in just the other side of the coin of, of, uh, being religious to me because it's some sense that, you know, and I think what I'm trying I think what I've moved towards personally is more towards being agnostic in the in the sense that like I really don't mm-hmm. know. What I do know is that there is a lot that I don't know. And I know that a lot of people I admire and respect have the capacity for faith or religious belief. And I know that that you know 99% of what happens in the world is outside my control. So this idea of higher power. Um, is still something that I wrestle with but it's it certainly moved me closer towards some semblance of intellectual humil- intellectual and spiritual humility and just kind of a, I don't want to say resignation but just a you know a sense that like look like I'm not in the driver's seat here and I think that's probably what you were taking from that that mm-hmm. thing you're like oh it's not, speaking gigs aren't necessarily I put in the work, I get the results, which is how we want the world to be and how it can feel sometimes. But the truth is uh a lot of it is random, a lot of it is outside of our control, a lot of it is complete luck. And and if we can see and sense that, we're we're going to we're going to have an easier time of things, yeah. I think take things less personally both i think there's
5: almost a sense of arrogance in the people who are unwilling to acknowledge the role that luck plays in their accomplishments like i i'm very like it was damn lucky that of all the essays that my editor of penguin could have found when she was perusing medium that day was mine and that's the one we chose like there are a thousand other posts on there you know maybe more now, way more now and like that was dumb luck that you know had nothing to do with my skill
1: no, that's that's totally right. And look, you're you're lucky to have been born now mm-hmm. and not a uh, hundred years ago when you couldn't have published on yeah. Medium. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there's so much uh, goes into everything that goes right it, that the more you study it and the more you think about it, the harder it is to give yourself credit for it. Well, let's.
5: Speaking of accomplishment, I think you know the idea on this this chapter of enough was probably one the one that resonated with me the most because I think it's something I've been thinking a lot about, uh, particularly because I've just packed up an apartment and thrown a bunch of stuff into storage. Um, And you know, I don't know why this conversation seems to be like echoed. We have somebody we had somebody on the podcast talking about optimizing our lives for enough, and I think the thing that you said here is. Most people never learn their accomplishments will ultimately fail to fully provide the relief and happiness to that we tell ourselves they will. Or they come to understand this only after so much time and so many relationships and moments of inner peace were sacrificed on the altar of achievement. And you say that you will never feel okay by way of external accomplishments. Enough comes from inside. It comes from stepping off the train, from seeing what you already have, what you've always had. And I think that struck me in one way because um, you are, you know somebody who has accomplished so, you know, a lot of what you've accomplished, most people don't do in a lifetime. And so I wonder when you have those two dichotomies at work, you know, how do you think about this for the person who looks at you and says, wow, Ryan has done so much more than I have.
1: Well, it, it's, it's interesting. And I think sort of humbling and, and revealing, right. So it's like, um, yes, I've, I've, I've sold a very good amount of books. I've, I've gotten to publish books that I've, I've wanted to write They've had influence in circles that I couldn't have imagined. Uh, I, I get to do the profession that I dreamed about doing—that that literally millions of other people would kill to have the opportunity to do. Um, so, in some respects, you might think like, "Oh, you know, he wakes up and and all he feels is, is that it's it's awesome and that he's amazing and that he's achieved all this." Of course, nobody does that, right? All all you think about is like the breaks that you didn't get or how other people have sold more, uh, or, or how you know, there's some next level that you're trying to get to. And so to me, what I think, what I take from that, it, you can take two things from that. One, you can go, so, okay, I don't feel good because I haven't broken into that next level, so I just have to keep going. I'm almost there, but you know, if I sell another, if, if I can get a book that sells a million copies, then I'll finally have all the money that I want. I'll have all the audience that I want. I'll have more influence than I know what to do with. Then I'll feel good. Then my parents will be proud of me, and all will be well. And and that's what a lot of people do, right? They you know they they make it to first base. They hit a single, and they go, "Oh, that was great." But like hitting a home run, that's what it is. Then they hit a home run, and then they go, "Ah." It's a grand slam, that's what it is. No, it's hitting a grand slam in a world series right and, oh it's it's signing the biggest contract in baseball, right like so you can see how that that uh belief drives a lot of accomplishment right because instead of ever being happy um they they keep going right and if look this is good for humanity in the sense that like. If Elon Musk wasn't driven, he would have stopped at PayPal and we wouldn't have Tesla and we wouldn't have SpaceX and blah, blah, blah. Um, if if every senator was happy being senator, no one would ever become president, right? Um, so it is good in the aggregate, but on the individual level, the truth is that it's a lie, right? Like the idea that it's just, been, it's just on the other side of that hill that your happiness will finally be given to you. That's the whole problem because the truth is you can't fix an internal problem with an external accomplishment. There is no level where you feel good. I'm not saying like nobody should do anything and that it's awesome to be poor and that you know nobody should try. I'm just saying that like there's no amount of accomplishment that's going to make you feel great about yourself. You're always going to have these doubts. And so if you want to work on that, you have, to, you have to step off the train a little bit and realize, oh, it's not that that's not worth going towards. It's not that it's not cool to be president. It's that being president isn't fundamentally going to address the spiritual or emotional problems that I have. I have to do that quietly by myself. Uh, and, and, and so the good news is that it's, it's accessible to everyone. Not everyone can be president, but everyone can feel content and good if they, they sort of stop and do the work. And, and I'm not saying I've done it. I'm just saying that I'm working on it. So let's get into the idea of body. I
5: think this was particularly important, uh, you know, in the wake of so much of what we've seen in the last year. I mean, I think that there's no question that our digital devices and then the way we use technology has led to a whole host of mental health issues, like, you know, rises in, anxiety depression all sorts of stuff um you know i mean building a routine all that stuff we've talked about a lot of that stuff before on the the podcast um but i think that there are a couple things here that really struck me one was this whole idea of getting rid of your stuff and i I saw how freeing it was to get rid of my stuff even when you know like literally even books which i absolutely love i'm like wow this room feels a lot quieter without all these damn books in here uh there was something you said that I think was really interesting. You said, we don't need to get rid of all of our possessions, but we should constantly question what we own, why we own it, and whether we can do without. And I love that. And at the same time, I thought to myself, well, yeah, if I'm a retailer, I'd be like, no, I don't want you to tell people this. You know? uh, right. So so I wonder, and I know that you know I, I learned this, I think, in the last year as I started just paring down things. That I, my commitment became, you know what, I am going to basically – buy the nicest stuff I can buy, but I'm going to have a lot less of it. So I went from like 20 to 20 shirts yeah. in my wardrobe to like six from my favorite shirt maker, proper cloth. And my sister was like, well, shouldn't you get some sweaters? And I was like, no, I was like, I don't need anything else. I have that it's like six shirts and a pair of jeans. That was my whole wardrobe. I don't have to do laundry. I don't have to do right. anything. It's fantastic. Uh, and at the same time, like, you know, consumption is what keeps the economy going.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it's, it, again, look, it, the, the, the belief that things will make us happy is good for society. It's an insidious lie for individuals. And so it's something my wife and I talk about a lot. We, we are, you know, trying to always be getting rid of stuff that we don't need. We're trying to pare down our needs. And then even the stuff that you keep, you know, can you, there, there's this great sort of Zen parable about a, a monk who has this cup and he would say to himself over and over again the cup is already broken the cup is already broken and then when the cup breaks okay he already knew that it was broken you know it, it wasn't it, it didn't change its status in his mind because he already understood that it was you know sort of fragile from the beginning and and that's something that i work on too like i have lots of books i just try to remind myself that the value of the books is what they've put yeah. in me uh it's not what's it's not my notes in the pages. And I love my house. I would be sad if it burned down, but I wouldn't throw myself in the flames to go with it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, uh, it's just sort of, it, the, can, it's not just about getting rid of your stuff, but can it, you get rid of your attachment to your stuff. And that's, I think, the, the stoic idea. Seneca talks about this idea of preferred indifference. He's saying like, look, it's better to be tall than short uh so if you get to choose obviously pick tall but you don't really get to choose most things so you got to make do with how they are so it's like look i'd rather you know uh i can afford a nice car so i have a reasonably nice car i don't drive a ferrari but i drive a car that's comfortable and reliable and you know nice uh but if i had to drive a beat up car take the bus i mean i wouldn't feel like it reflected on me as a person you know and so can you have the stuff, but not yeah. need it? To me, that's the that's the deeper philosophical place you yeah. want to get to.
5: Yeah. So uh, I don't want to get into a conversation about health and wellness, because yeah. I think that actually doesn't even really do this justice, because I think you took a very philosoph- philosophical approach to the body. But one thing that you talked about here, which I thought was fascinating, was you talked about finding a hobby. And I remember having this conversation with Jordan uh, Harbinger, who I, I know is a the both of ours, yeah. Uh, at the time of audience of one, and we're talking about you know creativity for its own sake, and he said, yeah, people don't have hobbies anymore; they just have side hustles. <laughs> and yes, uh, totally. And so you know, I, I mean, I'm lucky in that I have to found this hobby that has like the intersection of all these things that I love. You know, it, it's exercise; um, it provides travel opportunities, and uh, you know, it's it's an incredibly enlightening spiritual practice as well. You know, and that's surfing. But I realized that sure. there was a lot of truth to what Jordan said. Like people actually don't like how many people, you know, it's like people don't just paint for the sake of painting. It's like, Oh, I'm painting this thing. So now I got to put it on Instagram.
1: Right. No, we turn. The problem is we turn our hobbies into a job. Right. And, and, and then that, that strips them of their purpose. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think it's very important. Uh let's say this podcast had gone horribly uh, or it had gotten canceled or you, you know, whatever, I'm going to go work out afterwards. I'm going to work out if it afterwards if it goes great, you know? And so it's like having something that you can throw yourself into that you have a lot of control over that isn't subject to random luck or fortune is really, really important and, and has contributed in, in a big way to my, uh my sort of creative success certainly is that like look I I run every day, whether it goes well or not goes well. Um and and you wanna you wanna cultivate those those hobbies. And in the Second World War, Winston Churchill picked uh at the end of the First World War, uh, Winston Churchill picked mm-hmm. up painting. And he said, like having a hobby is the the most important thing for a busy public person because you need some outlet for the frustrations and feelings that you have. And uh, and and you've got to cultivate those things, or you're going to well, go it's insane. funny George W. Bush did the exact same thing after he reti- after he was done with his president. Yeah, and he got I that know. from Churchill. Someone said, "Hey, you know, I Churchill know. painted." Yeah, and, and maybe he would have made better decisions in office if he'd been painting yeah. uh, painting while he was while he was in office. Well, I
5: think that then there's you know one last piece I think which I, I really appreciated. You know, you talked about this idea of be wearing, you know, being aware of. Escapism, and you said, you know, the problem is that you can't flee despair. You can't escape with your body problems that exist in your mind and your soul. You can't run away from your choices. You can only fix them with better choices. And and I remember that particularly because I remember there was a period of time where I was lonely, where I was living, and every weekend I was like, oh, you know, the one thing I know I can do is I can get up to the mountain, and if I'm going, you know, thirty miles an hour down a mountain on a snowboard, about everything. And at at moments I wondered, I'm like, am I treating this as a hobby or is it becoming a form of escapism? Like I really started to, so I wanted to. Um, kind of, you know, that that is a way of sort of setting this up and teeing it up for you in terms of okay, explain this whole idea of escapism to us.
1: Well, look, I, I think travel is a sort of great example of that, and it has been, you know, all the way back to the the ancient world. People are unhappy where they are because of their marriage or choices that they've made, or the life that they're living, or the job that they have, and instead of going, I have power over this, I'm going to change that but it's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to require me to face some truths about myself. We say, ah, I need to travel to China or I need to backpack through Europe or I need to go to Hawaii for two weeks. And and th- this is just, you know, uh, this is just window dressing. This doesn't solve the problem. Because uh, ironically, um, when you travel, you bring yourself along with you. You also bring, I don't think it's a coincidence, what we call baggage, right? You, you have emotional baggage and you have luggage. And, and so, you know, eventually you come back to the same discomfort or you bring along the same bad habits with you. So I'm not saying that there's a problem with travel. I'm not saying you can't really get into your hobby. It's just like, look, instead of dealing with the fact that you don't like your job and that this isn't what you should be doing with your limited amount of time on this planet, you've decided to train for an ultra marathon, you know, and you, what you've, I'm not saying it's bad to run an ultra marathon, but, but this is just distraction and addiction, um, in, in a slightly more socially accepted context. And like the oldest demographic of people who do, uh, triathlons is like 50 Mm -hmm. and older. Um, and I would argue that that's because these are 50 year olds who are, Coming to grips with the unpleasant reality that they have not spent their life particularly well, and they are looking for meaning and purpose uh, in a you know in a three hour weekend format rather than just you know staring in the mirror and and, and doing some work on hmm. themselves. Amazing.
5: Uh, well, this has been thought provoking, eye opening
1: uh, as always
5: in, in every conversation I have with you guys. So I have one the last question for you, which is how, and I I right. asked you this before, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Um, what makes someone unmistakable? I, I, I think, um, it's, it's when someone sort of authentically pursues like the thing that only they can do. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about, uh, recently and and in my work is like, there are lots of books that I could write, and then there are the books that only I could write. There's lots of things that I could do, that you could do, that other people could do, that could make money, uh, or that could be successful, or that could even be well received. But like, what we need on this planet is for people to to focus on, you know, the law in the law in, in economics. They call it the law of comparative advantage. We need people to do the thing that only they can do, and this is what you you talk about in your book, like. Go where you have a monopoly, where you have no competition, where you're the only one doing it. Um, that, by definition, makes you unmistakable because you are uniquely yourself. And um, I think this is this is hard for people to do. It's hard for people who are talented at more than one thing, uh, particularly because they actually have a choice. Um, but but I I think you know that we should be trying to do the work that we were put on this planet to do not the work that if we don't do, uh, someone else will gladly do.
5: Amazing. Well, I can't
1: thank you enough for taking the time to join us, Um,
5: come back to the podcast again for, you know, I think what is your fourth appearance uh, and share your story and your insights and your wisdom. Where can people find out more about you, your work and uh, the new book?
1: Yeah. So, so thank you for all the, all the support. I mean, uh, like I said, I think you were the first one to ever give me a chance. So I appreciate all of it. And uh, if people want to hear more from me, they, you can get my books anywhere books are sold. You can check out my website at ryanholiday.net. And then if you want a, a, a weekly or a daily morning meditation about Stoicism, you can go to dailystoic.com email, which is uh, my favorite thing to write. And, and about 200,000 people get it every morning. So you're in company. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that.
5: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
3: Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.